and welcome back to the Beyond Aromatics podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Rose. For each episode of this podcast, we interview a member from the field of holistic aromatherapy about the work they do, the research they find, and how they incorporate essential oils in their lives and practice. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association for Holistic Aromatherapy. To learn more about the work we do at NAHA, how to get a hold of our quarterly aromatherapy journals, how to attend our monthly webinars, or how to sign up for our 2020 Beyond Aromatics Conference held in Salt Lake City, Utah, October 14th through 17th, please visit our website at www.naha.org, or you can find us on Facebook at Aromatherapy Community or on Instagram at Beyond Aromatics. All right, here's this week's episode. Today we have on special guest Dr. Florian Berkmeyer, here to talk about his work with aromatherapy and healing trauma and addiction as the wounded healer himself. Dr. Florian Berkmeyer is a wounded healer and the co-developer with his wife Kathy Skipper of Aromanosis, which synthesizes Jungian depth psychology and aromatherapy. Florian and Kathy have been practicing what they preach through a continual commitment to transform life's obstacles into opportunities for growth using aromas as living allies. They teach their approach all over the world and online at aromanosis.com. Florian practiced holistic psychiatry in his private practice, the Berkmeyer Institute, for many years with an emphasis on trauma and addiction. In his practice, he integrated aromatherapy, equine-assisted therapy, and bridge building between different medical worlds. He received his BA from Princeton University, his MD from Columbia University, and completed his psychiatry residency at the University of New Mexico, where he also worked as an assistant professor before starting his private practice. He completed a master program in aromatherapy under Conry Henry, ND. To learn more about Florian and Kathy and the work they do, please visit their website at aromanosis, that's A-R-O-M-A-G-N-O-S-I-S dot com. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome, Dr. Florian Berkmeyer. Thank you for joining us today. Um, you are going to be discussing uh, with us the topic of aromatherapy for trauma and addiction. Um, and I, you recently did a webinar for us um, about healing trauma. And um, it was a great webinar, so I will make sure to plug that at the end of the episode. But I wanted to see how you're doing first and foremost. Thank you, Savannah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm really grateful and excited to talk about my work. And uh, uh, yeah, life's really good right now. In a couple of days, Kathy and I are off to Brazil, where we'll actually be teaching our live class, Aromatherapy for Trauma and Addiction, twice, once to a group of Colombian therapists that are coming down. And they work a lot with uh, victims of trauma in Colombia, where there's been an insurgency for many years, and also human trafficking. And then we're also going to be presenting at a conference, a national conference of aromatherapy in Brazil. Uh, so we're really excited that there's interest really all over the world for our work. And trauma and addiction are just such a, a an era, a topic that touch everyone. Um, I've never met a family that wasn't touched by addiction. And then if you dig deeper by trauma. So I'm just really grateful that we get to share our work. Yeah, and it's, it's great that you can be here with us and kind of discuss one of the topics you've been 
really discussing about as of lately and having all these classes on it and stuff. So I'm hoping to give people kind of some insight and then obviously they can come to you to, to learn more about this. So I always ask people um, how they got started in aromatherapy and on the topic they're presenting and maybe some of what your background has been in. Sure. So in terms of aromatherapy, personally, I remember I was a kid in the 70s and living in Austria and my grandparents would go to Switzerland a lot to get away from, you know, of just vacationing. And, and the Swiss were very early pioneers in aromatherapy. So in the 70s, there was an early a uh, product called JHP. It was a mixture of various essential oils, and uh, we would smell that and use it for flus and use it in the sauna. And I just used it for myself. And I remember that in medical school in the 90s, you know, you have to memorize and learn an incredible amount of information. And I found that if I would smell basil and citrus oils, I could just focus. And I remember my colleagues would study together and they'd be like, what's that funny smell that stinks? <laughs> But uh, then they sort of caught on. And, um, you know, psychiatry is an interesting field. It's a very conservative field in many ways. And I think it's because they've, it's a fairly young discipline in medicine. And I think because, of, because the unconscious is so nebulous and powerful, I think psychiatry has tried to distinguish themselves from pseudoscience for a long time to greater or lesser success, I would say. But then in... Uh, in I did my psychiatry training in New Mexico and then worked as an assistant professor and uh, started, you know, with all the stress, I had trouble sleeping. I'd made a little sleep blend for myself using essential oils and I gave it to colleagues. And then other colleagues would sort of, you know, the grape wine did whisper to me, hey, can you give me some of that? <laughs> and then about 10 years ago, I started my private practice. And as a friend of mine said, I jumped out the allopathic window and there was really this pent-up demand, even though I just told a few colleagues I was starting a private practice, these clients found me that were really fed up with business as usual. You know, they were having horrible side effects from medications, the medications weren't working. And so I really uh, felt at liberty to share essential oils. And at first I started with just treating symptoms, you know, difficulty sleeping. And already then a lot of people with trauma issues found me and if people would get really distressed and distraught while they're talking about their trauma in the office and start shaking and their eye their eyelids started flickering and you could tell they you know they were about to what's called dissociate i started using oils with them to ground them and it was really rewarding and that's really when i um that, that became my model of, of, of what I wanted to do. And at first it was symptom-based and then I'd been studying Carl Jung's work for 30 years and really only began to understand him about 10 years ago, I would say. And Jung's model of alchemy as a model of psychic growth and development was a lot more satisfying to me than just covering up symptoms. And if you cover up symptoms like whack-a-mole, you cover up symptom and another symptom comes up because you're not really dealing with the underlying issue. And so the Jung's model of depth psychology and the alchemical stages really gave me a sense of what the underlying issues are and that the symptoms are really messages from the psyche saying, here, here's what I need. And instead of covering them up, sort of shooting the messenger, working with them, teaching people to tolerate the symptoms and teaching people how to go through the process that the psyche wants. And that's, again, not just something book knowledge you know, the word doctor actually means like teacher, and it was distinguished in the old days from the hygienists, you know, the the, the ancient schools of healing. There were some that, you know, it was probably the precursors to the modern uh, 
um, retreats and ashrams in ancient Greece where people would work on themselves first and then people would come and get healing. And doctors from the beginning were always like, do as I say, not as I do. So mm -hmm. I started shifting from being a doctor to really working on myself. That's why I started calling myself a wounded healer because that's the most important thing to remember that I can only take people as far as I've worked myself and I've healed a lot of my traumas and self-destructive patterns. That's sort of where I came on the mental health side and, and on the oil side I already mentioned. So so I guess you saw like large gaps and maybe some treatments and you saw maybe a niche you could fill, is that correct? Yes, I think both trauma and addiction and by trauma, you know, I use sort of a blanket term. There's PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and some people talk about acute stress reaction. And there is some acknowledgement now of what's called complex PTSD. But overall, trauma and, and, and some of the old diagnoses that were used in behavioral health and even people who are not in behavioral health have heard of them. There are labels like borderline personality disorder or rapid cycling bipolar. And there were these, I call them garbage can diagnoses. If a, if a client was really challenging and suffering a lot, there's a, often a, a negative reaction, often an unconscious reaction from the providers, from the people treating them. And so these labels were used very pejoratively, sort of like almost like a warning, or be careful that patient's borderline. And I don't know where that came from. I was thinking about it, but I've always been interested in sort of the gaps in the system, the outcasts. I love St. Francis of Assisi because, you know, the first creatures he preached to were the vultures that were considered the lowliest creatures. So it really bothered me that these people who were suffering were put on the outside saying, oh, you have a diagnosis that's very hard to treat. I'd rather treat something else. That was really the message, implicit message. And the same with addiction. I remember in medical school, as soon as an addiction issue emerged, it was sort of like this venereal disease or STD, like, oh my God, well, take care of that and then come back when you're ready to see me. And that carving out, that sort of black boxing saying, well, that diagnosis is a black box. I don't want to deal with it. it really bothered me because I've always been interested in being holistic and working holistically. And I quickly realized that when people, you know, I, I, maybe because that bothered me, I was very interested in addiction treatment. So when I got to New Mexico, I was, you know, I didn't even know it, but I was really lucky because New Mexico has been pioneers in treating substance abuse. Motivational interviewing was developed here. Many harm reduction strategies like needle exchange and methadone were pioneered here and even Narcan kits. So there's always been this pragmatic attitude that I had no idea when I picked New Mexico for my psychiatry residency. So it was really a gift, but still, so I got to work with a lot of people with addiction issues and very quickly realized that most people with serious addiction issues, the vast majority have underlying trauma issues. Even if they have another major mental disorder, depression, psychosis, many people are traumatized and are using substances really in, in a very self-destructive way, but to self-medicate, to numb themselves, to tune out, to zone out, to be able to go to work in the morning because the trauma symptoms are so overwhelming. So I realized that trauma and addiction are kind of flip sides of the same coin, that if you treat addiction without paying attention to trauma, horrible things happen. And that's slowly trickling into the mainstream. Not, not really yet because, you know, it has to be treated integratively and often people treat one and then the other, which is limiting. But so the fact that both of these diagnoses or clusters of diagnoses were sort of outcast diagnoses intrigued me and I felt called to work with them. And then I realized that 
again, for most 90% of people with substance abuse, I would say the underlying issue is trauma. And sometimes it's not explicit trauma, like being molested or witnessing something horrible. There's also a form of trauma called neglect, when we don't get the emotional nurturing as a child, and that can cause um, borderline personality disorder, complex PTSD, as well as substance abuse issues. I kind of wanted you to elaborate on the term you coined, the wounded healer, and how um, you've brought, you, you've kind of shaped a lot of your work <clears throat> on that aspect. Well, thank you for asking that, because that was really a huge turning point in my life. You know, I, I was in my private practice. I wanted to be there for all my clients. You know, I had sort of that, I want to be there for the outcast mentality. And I was really burning myself out. I don't like the word burnout because it's so powerful. It's such a meme, but I was really heading to a bad burnout. And it's a funny story. I'd read this book called The Alchemy of Healing by Edmund Whitman, who was actually born in Vienna, studied medicine, and then emigrated. And he was both a Jungian analyst and a homeopath. And I really don't know anything about homeopathy. But in this book, I was reading it, and he talks about, um, if you get the book, there's a story about um, Godfather death. I won't go into it, but basically um, the the passage that really transformed my life, I could say, was, I, and I'm summarizing here, was like if the healer, the psychiatrist, the therapist wants to be there for the client no matter what, but they haven't really dealt with their own issue, they actually trap the client in the patient role. You know, if, if the wounded healer hasn't dealt with their own wound, they can become the wounded wounder. You know, and I saw that I treated physicians who had substance abuse problems, so they were destroying themselves, and I treated physicians that, and, and other people that had boundary violations. But this passage that I was keeping my patients trapped in the patient roles terrified me. It was like the scariest book I'd ever read. It was, and, and I realized I could not go on like that. So I couldn't be on the desk when people have this expectation. They walk in the front there, oh, doctor, you have all the answers. Tell me what to do, because that entire construct automatically people put themselves in the patient role. Even if I want to be a great psychiatrist, I unconsciously automatically put patients in the patient role and I keep them trapped from, act, you know, this is one of the most important archetypes is the shadow. So whatever we think of ourselves, sort of the opposite is buried in our shadow and our unconscious. So the healer, the therapist, the psychiatrist has a, a wounded quote unquote patient inside of themselves that we're unconscious of. And likewise, the quote unquote patient that walks in the door has their own healer buried in their unconscious. And if we keep them trapped in the patient role, we never give them access to their own healer, which is ultimately, I don't want my clients to be dependent on me. I want them to discover their self healing potential, their healer inside themselves. And the only way I could do that is by working on my own woundedness. That's so the, as I said, there was this quote by Jung, if the wounded healer doesn't work on their own wound, they become the wounded wounder. And the whole term wounded healer actually comes from Carl Jung. It's an, he went back to the story of Chiron, who was a Greek centaur who got struck with a poison arrow, but since he was immortal, he couldn't die, but he was in never ending pain. So he became a great healer because he knew what the pain felt like, but he could never heal himself. So that's a really haunting warning and there's another aspect to the wounded healer that was 
Jung's favorite story of the rainmaker where in a Chinese village there's a drought and they call a rainmaker and he shows up and says, just put me in a cabin and give me food. And after four days he emerges and the rain comes and he's like, I'm done here. And the mayor says, yeah, but you didn't do anything. And the, he, the, the rainmaker says, wrong. When I came here, I felt out of balance. Where I live, I'm in imbalance. But when I came here, I felt out of balance. And it took me four days to restore balance within myself. And that's what brought the rain. So that's, again, the idea is that the most important healing work I can do is on myself, on my wound, on what's buried in my shadow. And that work, even if I don't tell my clients the play-by-play of what I'm telling you, that awareness then gives them permission to dig into their shadow and discover their healer that's buried. And, and that, to me, is the essence of healing. Now, you know, there's this joke somewhere, like therapies, when two people are in a room and both get better. Me mm-hmm. working on myself is the best way I can help anybody. Uh, I'm kind of wondering how aromatherapy works with what you're doing. Well, on many levels, and that's what was so satisfying. You know, most Western pharmacology interrupts natural processes. You know, if you take Prozac, it's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So the idea is that by blocking the natural process of, uh, by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, it makes things better. And I won't go into the details, but the idea is that uh, the drug interferes with the natural process so we can tweak it. And that, to me, always bothered me. The, the, you know, the word pharmacology comes from the Greek root pharmakon, which means both cure and poison. And again, there's that shadow. The, 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 the poison is the shadow of the cure, and the cure is the shadow of the poison. So, but let's leave conventional pharmacology aside. Uh, I felt firsthand how rapidly and deeply aromas, essential oils, changed me. And then again, I started using it on a, on, a, on a symptom-based level with my clients in my office 10 years ago. I couldn't sleep. You know, they had anxiety. They would dissociate. And it was just amazing how quickly they came back. And the other thing I really like is when you give someone a pill, the implicit message is, you're so messed up, you need to be on medication. It's a very self-disempowering message to say, oh, my God, I'm on medication. When you give someone an aroma, you're empowering them. You're giving them a tool to say, hey, if I get anxious or if I can't sleep, here are things I can do. Um, so those are two of the levels. But the most profound level, I, I've been fascinated with neurotransmitters and aromas for a long time. And one of the neurotransmitters a lot of people know is dopamine. You know, it's the, it's the pleasure molecule or the salience, the reward molecule. It's what a lot of drugs of abuse hijack. You know, and we get a dopamine rush if we exercise or if we make love or anything positive gives us a dopamine rush. But dopamine is actually a strange molecule. It accumulates in our brain, and over time, we get these, in some cases, toxic accumulations of dopamine. So it's like, well, why would nature evolution um, give us that molecule? And this is partially inspired by the work of Michael Pollan in The Botany of Desire. But basically, dopamine was a plant molecule for millennia before we humans incorporated it. And evolution, in many ways, you could say is recycling. You know, these molecules and receptors get evolved, and then subsequent species that evolve reuse them. But it's not just recycling. I've come to the conclusion, or I believe, that the plant, you know, we grew up until very recently completely in nature. You know, we didn't have electric light. We had to live by the daylight. We had to eat the plants that were in season. 
Um, and that happened for millennia since humans walked the earth and before. And so I suspect, and I'm pretty convinced that in a way, the reason we have all these plant molecules in our head and in our body, dopamine, but also all these olfactory receptors, you know, we, we have over 900 genes in our genome coding for olfactory receptor, which if you think of a receptor like a letter in the alphabet, that's like 900 letters in this alphabet of smell. And imagine the poetry you could write if you had 900 letters in the alphabet instead of 26 letters like in the English language. And we have olfactory receptors in every organ of our body. So, you know, often people think of us, oh, we humans are independent and our mind is independent, but we're really in constant communication with our environment. And I think a lot of modern lifestyle diseases, ADD in kids, diabetes, I think have to do with being in these artificial environments and not being in that constant communication with these plants that are sending us aromatic molecules and all sorts of other molecules so that we're in constant harmony and communication with them. So because when I had that epiphany that, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly receiving these aromatic molecules, I started calling them the molecules of connectedness because you know, they're reminding us and they're constantly giving us messages from the plant world. And conversely, to me, trauma, you know, the word trauma means cut. It comes from the Greek word for like a wound or a cut, but it's a psychological trauma. And what psychological trauma essentially does is it cuts us. It cuts us off from other people. It cuts us off from our family, our loved ones, our partners. It cuts us off from our purpose in life. And it cuts us off really from ourselves, from our sense of self. And similarly, in addiction, there's that famous TED talk now going around, everything you know about addiction is wrong, and it mentions an experiment from McGill University in Canada um, in 1975 about taking these rats that were addicted to morphine and cocaine. And if you put them in a cage by themselves, they will self-administer heroin or cocaine until they die. But if you take these same addicted rats and you put them in a big cage where there's other rats and water slides and all the fun things that rats like to do, they don't self-administer heroin cocaine. They go play with the other rats and get back to life. So both in addiction and in trauma, the, the essence of the disease is the sense of being cut off. You know, people often feel very guilty about drinking. They say no one understands and the same with trauma. And so for me, the fact that these molecules of connectedness remind us every cell of our body that we are connected to nature and each other, they're like, they're saying like, welcome home, welcome back. So for me, these aromatic molecules are like the perfect cure for that sense of cut offness that is at the essence of trauma and addiction. So when you're working with, with patients or clients, um, what do you use to, how do you prescribe the essential oils? Is it, is it like a prescription to use certain ones or um, how do you get them to incorporate aromatherapy into their own healing? Well, at this point when it's more, if people are more interested in symptom relief, I have a list of references and I formulas and I say here, you can use that. Uh, what I'm more interested in is again, is empowering people. So uh, what I like to do is both in classes, and our classes are really like healing rituals, and in individual sessions with Kathy and I have started offering, we show people how to journey inside using powerful aromas. 
and turning inside meaning sort of turning into the psyche into the unconscious into the spirit realm however you want to conceptualize it and you need a really high quality of essential oil and then then the the intelligence in the aroma is really like an ally you know people talk about shamanic allies like you you think of whatever your shamanic ally is whether it's a bear or a wolf or an eagle and it goes with you when you go into those realms where parts of ourselves are buried or cut off and we can use aromas in the same way and when we when we do sessions with people then we empower them that they can do it with themselves so the idea is that gradually people can retrieve more and more parts of themselves you know it, it may have to start out if they're really struggling with symptom control symptom relief but then what i'm really interested in is digging deeper and what's underneath and i'm going to say this now and it may be controversial but as horrible as many traumas are most traumas are if you journey often you realize that there's a hidden gift in the trauma and maybe that you know if you if you look at classic stories myths you know hero stories there's often an adversity to overcome you know the classic european eurocentric story is you know the knight has to go rescue the 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 princess in the castle and first he has to fight the dragon and that dragon is inside of us those shadow aspects are to ourselves and again you don't necessarily have to kill the dragon because if you read a lot of these stories at the at the crucial moment it always says the hero was true to themselves and so that's the gift is that in that adversity that the trauma has when we've worked on it when we've really journeyed into the shadow of it we are often gifted not on an intellectual level not in a way that I can look it up in a book but you really get this visceral soul gift where you're like wow that's my that's part of my personal myth that's part of my heroic journey similarly with substance abuse you can start with you know withdrawal symptoms and extended withdrawal symptoms but addiction is a great power addiction including especially alcohol has killed more people than the wars than all the wars in the world and in a way that's the gift of addiction some people realize that there's a power within us that is not subject to conscious control the, the classic story i tell is of a several clients of mine who would say you know is it the cash machine getting cash to buy drugs and as my fingers were punching in the pin code part of me was saying this is so stupid i i don't want to do this but i couldn't help myself and that recognition that there are these unconscious forces within us <clears throat> that are more powerful than us is the beginning of wisdom because it realizes that treating addiction is not a matter of willpower saying oh i'm just not going to do this anymore because those people don't want to do it anymore and yet their their shadow their addictive drive their unconscious is making them do it and so the the hidden gift of addiction is that we could learn to relate to that power which is a great power it's much greater than the ego or willpower and if we learn to collaborate with it and we cannot ever overrule it but if we learn to collaborate it we can use that great power as an ally and that that power can remind us of of this deep inner strength we have these allies we have so that's i hope i answered your question but that that that's why what 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 how i like to treat trauma and addiction is to look for the the shadow aspects of those really yeah you you went above and beyond for that and I'm wondering what you kind of see in the results from these. With, with the methods we give people and we empower people with, 
people can do with it what they want. But what, what's remarkable is for many people, it's like a light bulb went off. You know, it's something like the, it's like the, the missing piece of the puzzle. And so many times, many, many times, both with our six-day teacher training and in other sessions, almost against expectation, because you're right, the vast majority, the, the, the biomedical model is that this is a lifelong disease and you're going to have to deal with it your whole life. And, and in a way, what's implicit in that message is that great power I spoke about, but instead of labeling it in a self-disempowering way, oh, I've got this chronic disease that will ne I'll never get better from saying, well, here's this great power and it, I can either let it destroy me or I can work with it. So going back to your question, I've seen people make remarkable changes. People who've used substances for many years, cigarettes, cannabis, uh, alcohol, other things, and, and something inside switches. And there's sort of this awakening to a, a, what I call a heart awareness. It's kind of a form of self-compassion. When you get that urge for a cigarette, it's almost like you give yourself a hug and say, what is it you really need? So I've seen remarkable um, shifts. Um, Bill Miller, who was one of the pioneers who happens to be in New Mexico and who developed motivation interviewing a long time ago, talked about this idea of quantum change. And even in other treatment programs, you know, most people not, don't do very well at all. And then every once in a while, someone has this quantum shift or something, or people call it a spiritual epiphany. And that's what I've seen, not by having to subscribe to any particular ideology or philosophy, but just by cultivating that self-compassion and using the oils. And the other thing the oils do is, you know, even when we're fully conscious and we're talking and we're driving and doing our daily things, we're actually quite unconscious. We're sort of in these cognitive ruts. And those are controlled by a brain network called the default mode network. And that default mode network is actually quite unconscious. It's sort of like the screensaver mode on your computer. And there's actually done studies, there's studies out there that certain, I mean, they've studied only a few aromas disrupt the default mode network. So when we're in that default mode network, where many, many of my clients, you know, they light a cigarette and they're not, I mean, I met this is from a long time ago and they weren't even aware of it. It was a completely automatic thing. <clears throat> and so when you can disrupt those completely automatic patterns, so I'm going to have a cigarette, I'm going to have a drink, I'm going to do this through the power of scent. It's, it's not like people, you know, like waking up a sleepwalker saying, oh my God, what, what am I doing? So uh, people are really empowered and, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they're really learning how to work with that great power, that the power of the unconscious, the power of the shadow in them, instead of pretending it doesn't exist because that's when it usually destroys us. So when you work um, with people or when you recommend essential oils are there or are there essential oils you recommend that that are best for kind of healing this or going within ourselves well i think it's easier to talk about it on a symptom level at first i'll just give you a couple but you know my uh, the sleep oil i came up with and insomnia is a lot of it's, you know it's an acute withdrawal symptom and it's a post-acute withdrawal sy syndrome um and many people struggle with it and that's when they will use substances to knock themselves out and it used to be a formula that had spikenard and cardamom in it, but I've decided that I cannot use spikenard anymore because it's critically endangered. So uh, you can get valerian. Um, you know, you have to check where it comes from, make sure it's cultivated so it's not wildcrafted and from an endangered source. But the combination of valerian and cardamom is very good for sleep. And the cool thing is you just anoint yourself with it instead of ingesting something. 
So that's just a simple one. In terms of disrupting that craving that, oh, I really want a cigarette, they've actually done studies on pepper essential oil that when you get these cravings, you can use pepper to disrupt it. And if you don't like the smell of pepper, of course, you could blend it with um, other smells to make it a little more pleasant. When it comes to really working on what is the hidden gift, what is the power behind addiction, uh, and saying, I'm ready to change something, for me, the the foundational oil, when we're really ready to commit to a new path, almost like a pilgrimage, like a, I'm ready to do this, I'm not going to waste time anymore, I'm not going to twiddle my thumbs anymore. The number one oil for that is galbanum. Galbanum is the oil to me of commitment. It, it's sort of like, it, it doesn't take no for an answer, it doesn't give take any excuses. It's like the oil of, we're going to go on this journey now, come hell or high water. And I think that's really important because when we start digging in the unconscious, it's very easy to say, oh, that's not important, that's an ego trick, saying, oh, that's not important, don't open that kind of worms, or saying, I'm scared, I don't want to go there. And between cultivating a certain awareness, sort of this Jungian awareness of saying, oh, well, if that's not important, I don't want to go there, that's exactly where I have to go. And then the galvanum giving us the oomph, to the commitment to say, I'm going to go there, that's really important to digging deeper. And galvanum also brings stuff up from the unconscious. And then the the oil that... Kathy and I really both love that is really to me the master of the shadow is labdanum essential oil or, or you know the, the essential oil of cyst and labdanum is when it's made from the oleo resin of the plant and it's an ancient aroma the Egyptian pharaohs used it and put it in their beard and it wasn't I mean now you see labdanum in these beard products for men but the Egyptian pharaohs didn't do it for cosmetic reasons they did it for it was a very sophisticated spiritual technology. And similarly, in ancient Samaria, the warriors, when they came back from battle, would oil them, or cover themselves in labdanum. And the idea is that, you know, if you've been in battle, you've done horrible things, you've witnessed horrible things, so the labdanum, in a way, allows you to process all of that before you reintegrate back into normal society. And so we used to warn people, saying, do not use this oil without supervision, because unless you're ready, labdanum may bring things up that you know, you might not be ready to face. And that's where community, mentorship, doing a class with us, doing a consultation is really important because if if something comes up from your shadow and you're not ready for it, it can be overwhelming. And then it's easy to say, oh, that's uninteresting or I'm scared or it's everybody else's fault. There's, there's this term going around, a spiritual bypass. You know, there's all these Facebook posts about it now. And often people say, oh, I've worked so hard on myself. I've done all these classes, all this meditation. I'm just happy all the time. And there's this very haunting quote by Jung, as the branches of the tree grow into heaven, or in order for the branches of the tree to grow into heaven, the roots have to grow into hell. And if the tree is sort of the self, our ever-growing self expanding, as we reach heaven in the positive things we do, as we reach for the light and the fruits of our labor and wisdom, the roots also dig deeper and deeper into hell. So the further along we go in this work, often the deeper and deeper trauma we dig up. And that's important to remember that often people say, well, I've worked so hard on myself and these old traumas are still coming up. I'm so tired of this. My answer to that is, well, it's a really hard road, but the alternatives are insanity or death. When, when, when our soul comes calling saying, I'm ready to heal, you need to listen to my messages, and we ignore it, we either go insane or we, or we die. And I've seen that time and time again. So what other oils are there? Uh, those are really the core ones. I think it's really important to have grounding oils because 
when we go into these realms, it's very easy to get ungrounded. It's very easy to dissociate and just be in our head and just do this all intellectually. So embodiment and grounding is really, really important. I, you know, one oil I'll mention just because I hated it growing up in the seventies. I hated patchouli because it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. But then recently I discovered patchouli. And what I like about patchouli, it's sort of like it gives you this sort of like when a movie is out or a camera is out of focus and then it goes into focus, that's what it makes me feel like with my body. Like when I smell a good patchouli, it's almost like I can visualize my bones and my muscles and my sinews more focusedly. And that's really important. And um, I love rucus, which is the new term for wild vetiver. It's a really grounding and nourishing oils, and it, it sort of reminds us to em, em, enjoy being in our body because so many people are so uncomfortable in their body from trauma, and that's why they use substances. So to say, well, it's a really nice feeling to be in my body. It's a really important gift. Uh, sandalwood's really good, again, for grounding. You know, They say about when you do spiritual work, you have to be like a mountain where the widest part of the mountain is the base, and the only, the only way the mountain can support the mountaintop is because of how wide the base is. So sandalwood is good for meditation because it's so grounding also. <clears throat> Another oil that I think is really good for this ground, and grounding isn't just about having feet on the ground or feeling in our body. It's really also, really also about alignment. If you think of a pyramid or a mountain, you know, they're, they're sort of, there's a very distinct order to them. There's a center and an axis. And an oil that I find that's really both good for grounding and for that integration and grounding at all levels is angelica, both seed and root. And angelica to me is sort of like this ladder, like Jacob's ladder in the in the dream in the Old Testament, where he sees it going all the way from the bottom all the way up to heaven. Uh, that's another way we need to ground or center ourselves is that vertical integration. And at the same time, with that ladder, that grounding, angelica is a real journeying oil or an aroma that will, it's great, it's a great ally when you want to go into your soul, into the spirit realm, because it's it's a journeying plan. It just, it will take you to places where you need to unearth something that's been buried there that's not conscious. So those are a few of the oils we like to use. And a lot of times it's individual. Um, I think when people are really cut off, that sense of being cut off, I mentioned earlier, I think rose, is is really powerful and i really like rose attar because it's rose aroma in a, in a sandalwood oil so there's sort of like the sandalwood oil to me is like a pair of hands holding a, a handful of rose petals it provides this beautiful frame or bowl for the rose and when people have felt so cut off the rose it's like it gives you a hug and reminds you you're not alone so that's another really important aroma so um, you've mentioned this a few times, and I actually want to ask you this. Can you tell us what the the shadow person is and elaborate on that? Thank you. I, I, I use a lot of jargon, and I use it so much that I, I, I don't remember that not everybody knows it. So the way that, you know, one of Jung's greatest gifts is just to put a little framework is, is his view of the unconscious. You know, just to give a little bit of history, uh, for a long time, the unconscious really, there was no word for it. You know, people would say, oh, I was possessed by the devil. I recently, a couple of years ago, talked to a lady from, I think, Lebanon, and she said that there's an Arabic word like that's like the uncle, and it refers to this invisible part of yourself, you know, sort of this, this unconscious part of ourselves. Um, but we only have had a word for the unconscious maybe for uh, 120 years, 
And Freud's view of the unconscious was very Victorian. It's sort of like, well, here's my ego. If you think of it like a house, my ego is my living room and my front door. And that's where I see my guests and look at my nice roof and the nice windows. And the, ba the basement was like the unconscious. And Freud's view was really, well, the purpose of therapy is to rummage through the unconscious, you know, throw away all the old stuff. And then when you've cleared out your unconscious, you know, when you've cleared out your basement, you're healed. And that always bothered me, and it also bothered Jung. And Jung felt that the unconscious is actually much bigger than the conscious. It's sort of like if you think of a plant growing out of the ground, like a tree, our ego is in a way like the tree, and the ground around it is the unconscious. So there's a personal part of it, sort of the roots of the tree, the personal unconscious, and then the collective unconscious. And if you think about it, you know, on so many levels, I mentioned these aromatic molecules, but we're not conscious of them in a way. You could say they're the neurotransmitters of the world soul. We're in this constant unconscious wireless communication with through these molecules that fly through the air that we're completely unconscious of. We're unconscious of most of our body. I'm not telling my heart to beat right now. I'm not telling my lungs to breathe. I'm not telling my gut to move. So this unconscious is everywhere. And that was Jung's gift to realize that the unconscious, in, in a nutshell, is really our source, our connection to life. You know that the, the there's a there's an old Buddhist story where, if you think of the the waves in the ocean and the waves approaching the shore and it starts curling and breaking and then a little droplet flies off, and that little droplet is like an ego and the little droplet for those few seconds it's flying through the air yells I'm an individual, and the ocean is the collective unconscious, so we cannot get rid of the unconscious and when we suppress it we really suppress it at our own danger, so Jung's gift was we have to and and you can't control control it either. So Jung's gift was to say, how do we learn to relate to this part of ourselves that's bigger than us, that's more powerful than us? And so the, the first layer of that, uh, because, you know, we got to distinguish between this sort of personal unconscious, the parts of ourselves we can't see and the collective unconscious. And the, the, the first way we usually encounter the personal unconscious is the shadow. So that's sort of like this shadow personality you know the unconscious isn't just like a vast emptiness it has its own structure its own anatomy the psyche has an anatomy it has processes and it has characters in it and and the shadow is one of the first character most people meet so when you have that experience in life if you meet someone and you don't really know anything about them maybe one or two things but you absolutely can't stand them you're actually projecting a part of yourself that you're unable to see, unable to tolerate onto that person. So that's called a shadow projection. And so there's this quote by Jung where he said, the most important political and social work any of us can do is to deal with our shadow projections. And we see it with individuals. I don't like that person. I don't like the other person. And you even see it with people, you know, oh, that country, you know, I, I don't want to name countries now, but you see it sometimes when there's this mutual rhetoric Oh, that country did us wrong. No, you did us wrong. And that's where war comes from. And there's this haunting quote by Jung after the atomic bomb was dropped, where he said, the world hangs by a thin thread, and that thread is the human psyche. So we all have a shadow. And the danger is if we pretend we don't have a shadow, then we project it outwards onto other people. And that can lead all the way to nuclear war. And so the problem is we cannot see our shadow directly because we're unconscious of it. So we encounter it in projections in everyday life. Oh, I really don't like that person <clears throat> or, um, you know, that entire country.
We can also encounter it in dreams. Sometimes in dreams, we'll meet characters that really annoy us or that are really opposite. Uh, the other thing is, I think, and that's again why I mentioned the gift of substance abuse, I think that sometimes we realize we're doing things, we've done things that we're not conscious of, like the, the clients who told me I'm at the cash machine getting cash for my drugs and I don't want to do it, but something is possessing me. You know, in a way, what people used to say, oh, the devil made me do it, or I was born under an unlucky star. Instead of blaming others, if we say, well, what part of myself am I not aware of? What is this part asking of me and what can I give it that's not self-destructive? You know, if, if I think my shadow wants to get drunk or high, that's probably not really what it wants. If I learn to listen to it, to communicate with it by using the oils and journeying through ritual, then we can listen to our shadow. In a, and, and the shadow has great gifts. It has great power. If we learn to listen to it, it helps us grow and evolve. There's this great quote by Jung. I'd rather be whole than good. You know, being good means I'm good. I don't have a shadow. I've dealt with all that. Being whole means we keep chipping away at the shadow. We keep digging deeper and deeper, and it makes us more and more whole, and whole with a WH. So the gift of the shadow is it makes us more complete, and it, uh, it, it, it helps us evolve. So, and, and, and the danger is if we ignore it and pretend it is, doesn't exist, we, we destroy ourselves and others in the process. So thank you for that clarification. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, some of the work you do. I know that delves deeper into all of these topics and how people can um, learn more about you and Kathy's travels and uh, where you'll be presenting and workshops and all, all of that stuff that you all do. So thank you. Let me first mention our website, which is aromanosis.com. So that's A-R-O-M-A-G-N-O-S-I-S.com. So A, and, and, and I think it'll probably be in the, in the written description. And we just added, we've made a couple of free resources. So if you go to our homepage at the top, it says free resources. And one thing that's there is I recorded a series of three videos that are free. You just have to give us your email address and then you get access to the videos. And they talk about the shadow. And with that, you get a shadow journaling guide. So, it's, so some of these questions I mentioned in a more organized way that allow you to explore how you've met your shadow in the, in, you know, today or yesterday. And on the free resources also, it's a brand new thing. It's a holistic journaling guide, which is similar. There's no videos with it. It's just a journaling guide where we talk about all these different parts of the unconscious psyche and how you can journal. Um, and pay attention to those. And I just recently realized that there's all these studies about how journaling makes us, it's is good for us, you know, and there's measurable objectives for anxiety, depression, but also for physical symptoms, chronic pain, where journaling really helps. So that's just sort of, if you want to just dip your toe in the water, there's some free resources on our website. In terms of the trauma and addiction, the funny thing is that we could talk about what it means in terms of my shadow. We don't have an online class for it yet. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it and hopefully we'll have one. But for now, we're going to teach the trauma and addiction in Brazil, and we are willing and in the process of scheduling classes for late fall of 2019 and spring of 2020. So if you go on our website under live classes, you can look at the schedule of what's coming up. And if you, if anybody out there is like, oh, I, I'd love for you guys to come, and here's an organization, email us, get us in touch. We'd love to teach this class on trauma and addiction and any of our classes, really. And as I said, I'm, I'm hopefully... In the next few months, we'll have a trauma and addiction class online. In the meantime, there are a number of other classes on our website. There's a, 
our foundational class, which is called Aromatherapy and Medicine of the Soul. And it really gets into the alchemical stages. It talks at length about the shadow. So it's really the, the basic tools, the basic building blocks. And it's very in-depth. It's really our core class. And sometimes when people don't see the context, I mean, we've just talked about a great context for this model, which is treating trauma addiction. Um, but sometimes people need a more hands-on topic to understand the power of this method. And so Kathy has an online class, The Alchemy of Menopause. So that's available. We have um, other on online classes. Uh, there's a mini class called the Embodiment Journey, which is very important. There's our new class on plants and ancestors, which deals with historical trauma and transgenerational trauma. They're all on the website. They're all at aromanosis.com. And as a special offer for the listeners today, I wanted to give... So if you're interested in any of our online classes, we made a special code just for the listeners. It's 20% off any of our online classes. And the code is NAHA2019, so N-A-H-A-2019, all one, you know, no space, N-A-H-A-2019, NAHA2019. You get 20% off any of our online classes at aromanosis.com. And if you guys want more from uh, Dr. Berkmeyer, you can check out a NAHA previous webinar on uh, aromanosis, aromatic shamanism for the future, using aroma to turn life's obstacles into opportunities for growth. And um, you can find that on the Your NAHA member page or in our store under webinars. And uh, thank you so much for speaking to us today. And um, I think this is such an important topic. And thank you guys so much for all you do in your, your personal life too. So uh, that's all for this week. And until next time on the Beyond Aromatics podcast, thank you for joining us. Thank you.